0: Alokatawanto, kihirakan Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Nikoroi Hawkins. Coming
1: up... This is a David and Goliath fight for many of our islands, but this announcement is a resounding call that the Pacific is not standing down in the fight against oil and gas expansion.
0: Chile boosts Pacific countries committed to phase out fossil fuels at COP27. Also...
2: So the area that we've just conducted the test on will become what we call an impact reference zone.
0: Canadian Ocean Miner completes controversial Pacific seabed tests and later on...
3: We've been through a lot. I think the Rugby League World Cup is uh, one of the first things that happened for the last three years.
0: To us and more have a shot at writing more Rugby League World Cup history this weekend. Fiji, Tuvalu, Kenya and Chile have made commitments to a managed phase-out of fossil fuels by joining as friends of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, or BOGA. The alliance was officially launched in November 2021 during COP26 with the aim to reduce coal, oil and natural gas to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. Rachel Nath reports.
4: The Pacific has made its position clear when it comes to fossil fuel that it refuses to lose more land to the sea through the actions of industrialized giants. 350.org Pacific Regional Managing Director Joseph Sikulu says the expansion of oil and gas is a threat to the existence of many small island developing states.
1: The leadership shown from Tuvalu and Fiji as friends of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance comes just as our Pacific leaders fight to have the phase out of fossil fuels included in the final text of the COP27 climate talks in Egypt. This is a David and Goliath fight for many of our islands. but. This announcement is a resounding call that the Pacific is not standing down in the fight against oil and gas expansion.
4: Despite only two Pacific countries being recognized as friends of the alliance, other Pacific countries aren't in a rush to offer their support. Pacific Islands Forum representative Tia Tira says while it makes sense for more Pacific countries to join BOGA, there are a number of factors to consider when it comes to fossil fuel we are all actually very dependent on on fossil fuel for a lot of um, our economies, our electricity. So you also have to think what comes after that. And I think a lot of our countries are really taking careful consideration of it. But it's not to say that they are not um, for it, but I think it's how... Um, they see what happens afterwards. Other developing nations across the globe who have well-established fossil fuel industries have drawn a line and made serious commitments. 350.org Latin America Director Ian Guzman says Chile's participation comes as a statement to the world. By joining the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance,
1: is sending a message that it's possible to make some real commitments to eliminate oil and gas, to do a just transition in the country, uh, even in places where the fossil fuel sector is very well established and spend a lot of money to protect their privileges. This demonstration from Chile today uh, of leadership shows that when there is political will to guarantee a future for all, governments can overcome the harmful lobby of fossil fuels.
0: The final day of COP27 is Saturday New Zealand time, that's Friday in Egypt. For the latest on the outcomes from the climate meeting, keep an eye on our Radio New Zealand website rnz.co.nz. A Canadian deep-sea miner, the Metals Company, has announced the completion of a controversial mining trial in the Pacific Ocean. The trial was approved by the Legal and Technical Commission of the International Seabed Authority, an intergovernmental body of 167 member states and the European Union established under the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The approval was condemned by Pacific countries in September and environmental protection organisations opposing the industry called it actual mining being disguised as research. In a newsletter on Tuesday, the metals company announced that its subsidiary, Nauru Ocean Resources Incorporated, or Nori, and their offshore partner, Allseas, had completed scientifically monitored collection system tests in their Nori-D lease area within the Clarion-Clipperton zone. It said the mining trial involved engineers driving a pilot-collective vehicle across over 80 kilometres of the seafloor collecting approximately 4,500 tonnes of nodules and bringing over 3,000 tonnes up a 4.3-kilometre riser system to the surface production vessel Hidden Gem. Environmental impact assessments were also carried out during the tests and follow-up assessments will also be conducted. With me now is Dr Michael Clark, the Environmental Programme Manager for the metals company and Nori. Welcome on Pacific Waves, Dr. Clark. With the testing that's just been completed, what kind of things were actually done in terms of the scientific monitoring and environmental impact assessments?
2: Okay, so as you said, we've just completed the first um, polymetallic nodule system test that's been conducted in 50 years. There was a smaller scale test done back in the 70s. And um, after that test was done, it was realized there was no regulatory system in place. So everything was put on a long pause. And here we are 50 years later, just kind of um, taking taking up from what happened back in the 70s. So people have thought about this for a long time. Um, so our collector system consists of a collector vehicle, which crawls along the seabed, a lot like a big vacuum cleaner, and picks the nodules up using um Nozzles at the front of the machine, which utilise what we call the coanda effect. So they actually shoot a jet of water at the nodule to dislodge it, and then the as the water moves back into the machine, the nodule is carried with it. And this is a design feature that we've um, developed to minimise the amount of sediment disturbance. Once the nodule is in the machine, it gets then put in what what I can only describe as a big um, washing machine. So it gets put in a barrel that spins round. This separates the nodules from 98% of the sediment at the seabed. And that sediment is um, exited through the rear of the vehicle. The nodules then go up a riser pipe. And the way we make the nodules go up the riser pipe is we actually pump air into the riser pipe at approximately 2,000 metres from the surface vessel this creates a partial vacuum in the riser pipe, a lot like sucking soda through a straw. The nodules rise up the riser pipe over four kilometers, which is a phenomenal uh, distance for a pipe when you think about it, to the surface vessel. At the surface vessel, they go into another big washing machine called the cyclone separator. And that separates the nodules from the remaining bit of sediment and water that's been entrained in the pipe. The nodules then go into the hold of the vessel and the entrained water and a little bit of sediment that went up the pipe is then released back into the water column. For the purposes of the collector test, this was released at 1200 meters, and that's to get it below what we call the mesopelagic zone, which is that really productive zone where most of the primary production occurs. We do have the option to release that much lower if we need to, and part of the collector test was to Determine what the optimum depth was for that release of the midwater sediment. In terms of the environmental studies that we've been doing during the collector test, we've been monitoring and characterizing the midwater plume. So, how does the midwater plume disperse? Um, what is the chemical composition of the midwater plume? We've been doing the same for the plume that occurs on the bottom. So, as I said, when the nodules are initially picked up, and they're spun in the internal washing machine. Um, most of the sediments, over 95%, 98% goes out the back of the collective vehicle. So we've been characterising that plume, how far does it spread, where does it settle, what's the composition of it. We've also been monitoring things like noise production of the system, light production. Um, we've been uh, collecting samples of organisms before we mine an area and then we mine the area and then we go back and we collect those samples again to see what impact it's had on the organisms that both that live in the nodules and live in the sediment. So there's been a whole array of different physical and biological studies that have accompanied the collector test that we've just completed.
0: Is there ongoing environmental impact assessments after the procedure is now completed?
2: Absolutely. So the area that we've just um, that we just conducted the test on will that will become what we call an impact reference zone. So this is a zone that we will go back to um, on a regular basis over the life of the mine, which will be like 30 years. So over the next 30 years, we will go back to this area and we'll monitor how the organisms are recovering over time and that information will be absolutely invaluable to science because that that will help answer some of the big questions you know on what recovery rates are um what how how does an area adapt after a disturbance so yes the answer to your question is yes there'll be long term monitoring um following
5: the test
0: um so so some of the the opponents to this on the science side are saying mm. like the ocean has been hit so hard by by activities like the deep-sea tailings, um, dumping, pollution, overfishing, all of these things, why add another stressor to all of that to the ocean? What, what would you say to that sort of thinking?
2: So nearly all those stresses that you mentioned and, and, and that are brought up happen in basically shallow waters. So they're all happening on the continental shelves. Um, thousands of kilometers away from the deep ocean where we're operating so any stress that we produce is highly unlikely to add cumulatively to the stresses that are being um, that are being applied by those industries that you mentioned on the in the continental shelf areas um, and I think what the the actual benefits that we'll get in terms of curtailing greenhouse gas emissions and supporting um, the green transition will um, outweigh any any impacts that we do have in the deep ocean. So I really don't think that we will be adding significantly to the current stresses on the ocean. I think things like mining in the continental shelf, absolutely not. Um, Deep sea trawling in continental shelves, which happens again and again annually. Uh, One thing to remember about deep sea mining is it only happens once. We go, we collect the nodules, and then we leave, and that area then remains untouched. So from my perspective, I really don't think that any additional stresses that are added by deep sea mining um, will significantly uh, um, contribute to the cumulative impact from the stresses that are already occurring in the more shallow waters and on the continental shelf.
0: The full extended interview with Dr. Michael Clark was too long for this program, but will be available on our website, rndedai.com, under the individual segments of this specific waves podcast episode. Still on the metals company completing its specific trials, Greenpeace Oceans campaigners on Thursday peacefully confronted the deep sea mining ship Hidden Gem off the coast of Manzanillo, Mexico, as it returned to port from the Clarion-Clipperton zone. One of the biggest vessels of its type in the world, Greenpeace Mexico activists met the hidden gem in kayaks holding stop deep sea mining banners while Greenpeace Aotearoa campaigner James Hita delivered a cease and desist message to the captain of the hidden gem via radio. I spoke with Greenpeace Aotearoa deep sea mining campaigner James Hita in Mexico during the early hours of Friday morning beginning by asking for his initial reaction to the news that the trials had been completed.
5: Yeah, um, you know we're really disappointed that the metals company has called this a success. For us, it's a really huge loss, uh, and I really felt that yesterday when I was out and, and saw the hidden gem in person. It's a very far, far-fetched reality uh, to the sleek, white, clean, green-looking machines that they are trying to show the world. Uh, the reality is they big mining ships and mining machines.
0: The fact that they were allowed to do this, does that send some worrying signals in terms of the direction the ISA is headed?
5: Yeah, it sends some really worrying signals. Um, it shows us that the ISA is willing to let these companies do what they wish uh, and that the ISA isn't interested in developing regulations that are robust and backed by science, but rather that fit the narrative and fit the roadmap that mining companies are laying out instead of our people, the ones who truly care for the health of the ocean and the health of this planet.
0: I've managed to talk to the head the sort of scientist in charge of the monitoring and all of that. And one of one of the big things that he said that's, that struck me was, he said all of, all of the scientists involved in the monitoring were allowed and fully independent to use the data and research and publish it in whatever way they saw fit. Is, is that your sense of the monitoring going on around these things? It's
5: a really hard position that we're in um, at the moment because we have contact with many individuals across the whole project. And not many of those individuals feel safe to speak out um, against this industry. And hopefully in the coming days or the coming weeks, we should see one or two of them do so. Um, But until then, and until they feel safe, uh, we're in a a really tough position where it's hard to speak out against the lies that the metals company are portraying.
0: Now, you, you, as you've said, have, have been to see the hidden gem, the, the vessel that was used in these trials, and have managed to, I understand, make a peaceful protest?
5: Yeah, so um, yesterday we intercepted the hidden gem off the coast of Manzanillo, where I am right now, in Mexico. Uh, and we did that alongside activists from Greenpeace Mexico as well. Uh, so we intercepted the ship, which just returned from this trip where Uh, You know, it mined uh, 3,600 tonnes of polymetallic nodules, of minerals. uh, But we're here, you know, delivering a message of protest to call on the metals company to cease and desist. It's a dangerous project. The ocean is in crisis worldwide, uh, but especially to Moana Nui Akiwa. You know, the Pacific Ocean is at risk, and therefore our people's way of lives, uh, our livelihoods, tourism, fisheries, All of the Pacific economy is at risk by extractive industries like this. And, you know, this company is just trying to do this for its own profit. There's no other reason. Uh, And, you know, the movement to stop deep sea mining is growing. I'm proud to stand with my brothers and sisters. Uh, You know, we've got governments changing positions or forming strong positions like Aotearoa New Zealand calling for conditional moratorium. Germany calling for a proportionary pause, uh, the French president calling for a total ban. Um, and that's all off the back of amazing work by the Alliance formed by Palau, Samoa, Fiji, Micronesia, uh, backing a, a moratorium as well.
0: Quite interested by that mention that you did there of the the messaging around this. Uh, uh, two things that were came through for me in speaking with the, the metals company it was one they were saying that the damage that they were causing in the areas they were mining was far less, that was the comparison that they were making, than any of the land-based mining going on. One. Two, they were saying that there was a need for these 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 metals for the green transition. What, what, what do you think of that kind of messaging?
5: Yeah, so, um, you know, it's really hard to compare uh, land-based mining and ocean mining. They're different ecosystems. Uh, they're, they're completely different. And you know we, as Greenpeace, support a move away from extractive industries on both land and at sea. And, yeah, I'll just reiterate, like I do often, that this company is set to make millions, if not billions, of dollars if this industry succeeds. So they need a reason to justify that destruction. And the metals company press, um, you know, their story, their narrative is just greenwash. There isn't a need for deep sea mining. In fact, you know, we have seen a growing number of significant companies like Google and Samsung SDI, Rivian, Volvo, uh, signing a business statement, committing not to use metals and minerals from the deep sea. They wouldn't do that. Unless they were confident that that wouldn't affect their supply and demand. So there's just no argument there. It's greenwash and it's designed to justify their destruction.
0: The Royal New Zealand Navy's largest ship, the HMNZS Aotearoa, docked in Honiara, Solomon Islands today, its last stop on a six month deployment throughout the Pacific and Asia. Its commanding officer, Dave Barr, said the officers and crew of the 173-metre auxiliary tanker were very much looking forward to the stopover. While in port, the ship will host officials and guests on board and share some Kiwi hospitality to give thanks for allowing the ship to visit and break up the long journey home. Thank you to us for with Storei Wetemifalalo Pacific Waves, Commander Barr. It's been a busy six months for you and your crew. Tell us some of the highlights so far.
6: Uh, Well, Carter, the highlights for us have been um, deploying back into the Indo-Pacific region uh, after quite a couple of years uh, within the New Zealand region due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, For us, it started off with RIMPAC, the big exercise in Hawaii over July and August of this year, where 27 nations from around the world and the Indo-Pacific came together to to work together um, as friends. And for us, especially on Aotearoa, uh, being a, a fuel tanker, uh, there was only a handful of tankers on the exercise uh, with over 40 ships to refuel. Uh, so that gave my crew uh, some great experiences, uh, both uh, shoreside exploring uh, a new place, uh, but also uh, getting to refuel lots and lots of ships uh, from the end of Pacific. Actually, over our whole deployment, uh, we've refueled uh, 31 uh, different uh, evolutions uh, over about 15 ships. And we've passed uh, just under 10 litres of fuel while well, we've done that. Uh, to put that into context for some of your listeners, if if you drive a Toyota Corolla, that's about taking your uh, Toyota to the gas station and shift a thousand times to fill it up.
0: That's a lot. Now, I understand you've just burst in Honiara. We've had some hot days here in Wellington these past few weeks, but it must be scorching there.
6: Yes, yeah, so it's it's, uh, it's not actually too bad here. It's a, sort of a nice uh, summer's day in Auckland is what I would describe it with a little bit of humidity and uh, a nice fresh breeze, but still hot. Uh, we haven't actually berthed just yet. Um, as I believe uh, our uh, public affairs person was telling you, there was a, a severe thunderstorm here overnight last night in the port. And so the car kit that's currently on our berth, uh, it's finishing up its um, loading and it should be getting underway within the next 40 minutes. And then we'll be alongside shortly after that.
0: Awesome. And you've got some events and activities planned while you're in in port?
6: Yeah, so the intention for us is uh, obviously renewing our own ties with our friends here in the Solomon Islands, uh, especially with the maritime security arena that we all share in the South Pacific. Uh, we're going to hold a small function this afternoon with some of the local government ministers, some key dignitaries from uh, the diplomatic corps, and of course some of the Kiwis that are already here uh, from the New Zealand Defence Force, New Zealand Police, uh, and give them a little taste of home with some good Kiwi kai.
0: Yes, right. And uh, just a little bit more about those officers um, there on the ground. What what are they doing in Solomon Islands?
6: Uh, So they're part of a team that have been over since uh, December last year, uh, when uh, Defence and New Zealand sent over uh, some assistance uh, personnel um, due to the uh, the unrest at the time. They're um, liaising and working with local government uh, to help out with the situation on the ground.
0: Right, and and some others also with the Forum Fisheries Agency, I understand, on maritime surveillance?
6: Yes, uh, we've had a history of supporting that as well, and uh, that's a great um, organisation that keeps, you know, the the vital maritime resources and stocks around the southwest Pacific safe from um, illegal and unreported fishing.
0: Now, this is the last stop for you. I understand you're heading back home tonight, or tomorrow, is it? Uh, Just in time for Christmas.
6: Yeah, essentially, yes. Like, I mean, you asked earlier about the highlights. You know, after we did the the RIMPAC trip uh, in Hawaii, uh, the ship came across to Singapore for our first time after um, our time in Antarctica earlier in the year. So a bit of painting, a bit of hull survey. And then after that, a bit of engagement around Southeast Asia, uh, culminating at the Tokyo uh, Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force 70th anniversary uh, two weeks ago. Uh, and then uh, the big long trip home that we're currently on um, it's been a very uh, busy six months, and this is our last stop, as you've said. And so we sail tonight from Honiara uh, just because we, we need the speed to get back to Devonport and our families next uh, Friday uh, after quite a long deployment. As I said, despite this deployment, it's been a big year 2022 for Aotearoa uh, because despite the last six months away, we then had Antarctica back in February where we, we took the ship down for its first um, refueling visit there. And then uh, just before we went to Antarctica, obviously, we'd, we'd headed up to Tonga uh, to help out uh, after the eruption of the volcano there in January. So everyone is, uh, is looking forward to cutting home, having some uh, rest with family and friends over the Christmas period.
0: Well done. Safe seas. And thank you, sir. Thank you for your time.
6: Not a problem at all, Cora. And um, you look after yourself.
0: Samoans are gearing up for this weekend as their national team takes on Australia in the grand final
1: of the Rugby League World Cup. RNZ Pacific journalist Finau Funua has more. Toa Samoa and Australia's Kangaroos will battle it out this weekend for Rugby League's ultimate trophy at the Old Trafford Stadium in Manchester. The game kicks off in Samoa at 5.30 Sunday morning. Both teams have announced their lineups. Kangaroos coach Mal Meninga has made no changes to his side that narrowly defeated the Kiwis 16-14 in their semi-final last weekend. Whilst Toa Samoa coach Matt Parrish has made just one change, replacing injured star Hooker for Amanu Brown. All of the bookmakers hold Australia as the overwhelming favourites. The reigning champions have dominated rugby league for as long as the sport has existed and boast most of the best players in the world players such as Josh Adokar, the NRL's fastest rugby league player and leading World Cup try scorer Adokar flaunted his speed against the Kiwis in last weekend's semi-final when he chased down and catched a bomb kick made nearly 40 meters away from the try line But few league fans are paying attention to the bookmakers after Toa Samoa's thrilling 27-26 win over England in the semi-finals last weekend. Toa Samoa players entered the final on a high whilst the Kangaroos are in the to defend Australia's reputation. Tor Samoa boasts an extremely cohesive side. The team also boasts some of the best players in the competition including Eels forward Junior Paolo, arguably the best offloader in the sport. Regardless of the outcome, Samoans are already celebrating one of their nation's finest sporting achievements, being the first Pacific country to reach the grand final of a Rugby League World Cup.
0: And for sure, all over the world, Samoan communities are coming together to celebrate and the scenes are even more jubilant in Samoa itself. Early on Friday, RNZ First Ups Nathan Rarere spoke with one of the people behind the team's success, the president of Rugby League Samoa, Tangaloa Faofowina Suwa, who's in the capital, Apia. Nathan began by asking what he thought of the team making the final. Unbelievable, mate.
3: (laughs) indescribable feeling you know um, i think people are still carried away from um, last sunday morning and still trying to sink in you know everyone around the world and i think the the best thing with this World Cup campaign what the team has done is to reuniting our nation all together all around the world and over here in samoa With you know everyone like in the world and here in samoa we've been through a lot you know with the COVID and a lot of other challenges we had, and uh, I think the Rugby League World Cup is uh, one of the best things that happened for the last uh, two, three years for our nation, not just here in Samoa, but you know all around the world, yeah. all well... Saramoans around the world, and
7: our Pacific Island brothers as well. Yeah, and even in New Zealand too, because you know, you know, New Zealand is our brother too. Well, I was going to say that Tangaloa I know every Samoan in my neighbourhood because they have a giant Samoan flag hanging out of their car when they're driving around. Now they're very, very easy to see with right there, so I can understand what you mean there by the you know the uniting Samoans uh, around the world. So when when you look at this team's performance, how did they go from losing 60 to six against England in pool play and then beating them in the semi-final?
3: I think we were the only ones that understand our situation from the start. But um, now we didn't really have a, a time to put together the team. The last, we, I think we were the, the team with the last players to to be there at the game you know, for the five five days before our first match. Hmm. So we didn't have a, a warm up match and didn't have enough time. But you know, it was tough to absorb at the time, and uh, you know, it was. I think it's a blessing in disguise for us. To have that, um, <laughs> I would say, a very embarrassing situation. But it's fully. it's not how we started, but it's how we ended. It's always in the, you know, in the boys' uh, mind, and then move on from that situation after that came.
7: Back here in New Zealand, our women's rugby team just won the rugby world cup, and there was something really nice about the personality of the team, and you know how they're relaxed and bonded together. When I think of a Samoan rugby league team, I imagine that it's quite a it's a happy environment to be in.
3: I think that's the main thing. You know, everyone on the same page with whatever challenges and um, and issues that we face, we talk, discuss, consult, and then buy into it, and you know, all look at ways of how we, we deal with it and then move on and everyone's happy you know no we don't hold any hold any questions against each other we just put everything on the table you know just be honest with each other open minded and that's and that's the atmosphere I think that's the main thing yeah. no use uh, going into uh, a battle with your mind not free and not relaxed you know
7: and now here they are in the final of the Rugby League World Cup against the Mighty Australia. That game's going to be at 5 in the morning on Sunday. Do you you think the whole of Samoa is going to be awake for that?
3: I believe the whole of Samoa, with the 3.30am time last week, I believe the whole of Samoa were awake, and you know, <laughs> been praying. And because you get your notice with the, instantaneously after the game, there were parades in town here in Samoa, and I'm sure that's also you know around the world too. With uh, even though we have time differences, but we've seen some videos of some families and some other group of people, all the supporters in parading and showing the flags around, and then you know, very proud of the, what the team has done. But you know. It was very emotional last week. I think that's how most people feel. felt very emotional and overwhelmed with what the team has done. It's just unbelievable.
7: Yeah, and then, well, it'd be okay if people are a little bit late late to church on Sunday because they were watching the rugby league in the morning.
3: You no, know, well, there's still uh, some members who have to go and represent the families to the church, like for instance me here. I was just watching with my just my little family, and then our other extended family turn up drinking and turning radios on and told them no that's not the way how we we do things you know yeah. go back home, have a rest, go to church, thank God for what He has done for us and all his blessings, and also they need to also i mean They are very so happy people, but they also need to be responsible, too. You know, just because most of the time they're out of control. with the noise that they make shouting and doing chants. uh, But they need to do it at the right time, too, because there are also other old people that don't really take that easily. In the hearts of someone, people say the boys are already champion. They don't have to prove anything else to the world or us. All they need to do is to prove it to themselves that they can go that extra mile. Just one more.
0: That's the president of Rugby League Samoa, Tangaloa Fa Fowina Sua. That's specific waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and look at fala next time more.